Hello and welcome to the Tyler Bauckham Podcast. Today, my guest is my mother, Michelle Bauckham. Mom was a part of South Carolina's law enforcement for almost 20 years as a member of probation and parole, is heavily interested in ufology, the study of UFOs and extraterrestrial life, is the mother of an only child, myself, and grew up around the United States in places such as California, Nebraska, and South Carolina after following her father's academic career. If you've ever thought of becoming a mother, are worried about the decreasing rates of motherhood and the growing stigma attached to it, are thinking about a career in law enforcement, are concerned about what the government is hiding from us, or even interested in how to contact extraterrestrial life, I encourage you to listen to the remainder of this episode. This episode is not brought to you by any sponsors. Now, any brands out there looking to promote their content, services, or products, please reach out and I will make a custom ad and put it in the intro to my show at no cost to you. This is free publicity with no catch. And if you're interested in reaching an audience interested in philosophy, politics, self-improvement, or health and fitness, then my show is right for you. If this sounds like a good opportunity, you can contact me at the email listed in the episode description. Now, without further ado, Mom. What does it mean to you to be a mother? Everything. Oh, God. You have to be more specific. It gives me validation that I can carry, I mean, biologically carry on my lineage to some degree and also, you know, impress upon and improve the life of any children or child I have. Okay. So if it provides you validation and it means everything, then how much have you changed in response to being a mother? Because there were things in your life that validated you before. And if this is the primary thing that validates you now, then obviously some big shift has occurred. Oh, of course. Yes. I think that's, that's reasonable for most parents. Um, you know, you're primarily focused on yourself and perhaps a relationship or a marriage prior to children. But once you have kids, the focus does change to some degree because when you have children, I think it's fair to say that your hopes and dreams are that you can do the very best job raising that child to be a successful and happy individual. Talk a little bit about the burden of having and raising a child. Well, I mean, you know, certainly there is additional financial burden because you're caring for somebody other than yourself or a spouse as well. There's, you know, um, I think the burden is multifaceted because, you know, there's the social aspect, the financial aspect, the religious aspect, the family aspect. There are so many things that come into play when considering what that will mean in that child's life as to how they interact with those particular things or not. What do you mean those particular things? Well, you know, like as when you were growing up, we were used to going to church. And um, I think you got a pretty good foundation at uh, Trinity United Methodist. Whether a parent chooses to or chooses not to involve their children in 
any religious aspects is certainly going to shape that child one way or another in their life. Um, the same thing socially, the same thing with sports. So what I'm kind of getting at here is there is an increasing movement, let's say, in women such that they are less inclined to have children. And what what appears to be the motivating cause here is that such an immense burden is inherited from a child, but they're accustomed to a more comfortable life. Women become more independent nowadays. They're more financially independent. They have careers. They're more ambitious. And instead of the purpose being a child, their purpose can be something else. And so it's like, why should I sacrifice what I have? Why should I sacrifice my ambitions, my professional aspirations, my friendships, my hobbies for this little being that's going to make me change their diaper and scream at 1 a.m.? Well, there's a there's clearly a, a different movement going on, and I think that that relates directly to millennials and the different classifications prior to. In my generation, that was just something that you did. You know, I'm sure there were outliers where people were like, no, I'm never going to have kids. But for the most part, you know, if you follow the trajectory of college, marriage, kids you know that's that seemed to be kind of the norm of how things were going to go and there was no introspection there wasn't as deep introspection on my part per se or you know a spouse my spouse's ex-spouse's part per se um there there just seems to be so much introspection with this gener this current generation that it sometimes seems confusing to previous generations describe what you mean so you may be referring to me personally but i know i i think that i would like to state that as a generality so what have you observed in children and give us examples there just seems to be a a huge and very heightened level of sensitivity to everything okay maybe some examples will prove instructive um, because, you, again, you could just be referring to me, but you could also be referring to, hey, when I just go for a cup of coffee, like the kid behind me is socially anxious and for some reason is like very uh, hesitant in their social interaction. Well, I mean, there there are a lot of different things that play into it. You know, I mean, I didn't grow up with the technology you did. You know, the influences that that kids your age in your generation have had have shaped y'all's lives in a much different way than mine was shaped when I was, you know, when I was a teenager, the, 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 and in college too, the thing, you know, the thing to do was, if you wanted to hang out with a friend, you usually called them and you guys would go and maybe go out for dinner and, um, you know, drinks perhaps at some point in time. And, um, also too, the way that you would meet people, particularly, in the dating realm was face to face. It wasn't so immediate and such overkill and, and such a plethora of having everything at your instant disposal. Um, so I think to, to bring it kind of back around to 
what you're asking me is I'm not quite sure if social media, et cetera, has anything to do with the level of sensitivity in millennials, but um, it's just different. Everything, everything seems, every little teeny tiny thing seems to be internalized before there's a reaction. I mean, for example, today we were at the rock climbing park and I had to get a Band-Aid and I knew that I would have to wrap that Band-Aid with tape if I wanted to continue climbing because I didn't want the Band-Aid to slide off. And there was a Band-Aid jar and I guess there was a pair of scissors in the Band-Aid jar to cut the tape after you were finished wrapping it. But there was a young girl, perhaps close to your age, um, over holding the scissors. And I don't know that she had any tape to put on her finger or anything like that, but I wrapped, put the Band-Aid on, wrapped the tape, and then held out the tape and, and looked at her and her, looked at her and asked her, hey, would you mind cutting the tape for me? And it was almost as if I had asked her to, you know, anesthetize me and pull, my, pull one of my teeth out. She was perplexed. It, 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 it's almost like it had to register and she had to think about how she felt about it before it actually occurred. And it just seems like such a simple thing to me. So that would be just kind of a very lame example, I guess. But Do you not think your behavior was at all odd? I don't think it was odd in the least. Because, you know, from one human to another, with one person standing there kind of playing with scissors and not really using them and talking to somebody, and with me needing to utilize scissors, you know, I think your generation would stop, assess the situation, figure out where the scissors are, maybe wait until she had put them down, or perhaps waited and found an appropriate time in your frame in your mind to ask her may I borrow those and then utilize them yourself but for me it's just kind of an outreach like hey she's got the scissors you know let me just see if she'll just snip this tape for me real quick so that she can continue to hold on to them in the event that she was using them at some point in the future for something else the the feeling I get is is like people are always kind of performing but they're doing it in a calculated way or that, you know, that particular group. And they're highly sensitive to any kind of interaction thereof. I want to bring this back to motherhood. So, like I said, it, it seems motherhood is becoming increasingly, increasingly stigmatized. Mm. It's unclear why exactly that's the case. It could be that the increase in appeal of feminism is such that it disparages a submissive female role could be and their transition from something professional to something more familial and nuclear what would you say to people who have doubts about having children who perhaps their career is their priority but do you think they'll be missing out on anything well i think um if you let's, for example, compare, say, compare my generation with your generation, my generation did not prepare enough. 
your generation is focused on being overprepared. And I think there's got to be some place that's, you know, considered a happy medium amongst amongst the two. Um, <clears throat> along with what you're saying about the stigma and pursuing what they want to pursue and not conceding in their mind to having kids and, you know, dedicating their life to their career, you know, that also may stem from the benefits that men have, you know, had, you know, over the course, over the course of history up until, well, even probably now, but, you know, traditionally the woman stayed home and raised the kids. The men went to work. Um, you know, the women were home doing laundry, cooking the meals, taking the kids, you know, to school and, the, you know, and, you know, in this day and age, you know, maybe the women want to be able to be the ones more so to pursue their careers and not be, you know, stuck in that role. Because I think up until this point, um, and I'm, I'm sure it's still continuing to some degree, although I think there's been, you know, mass liberation based on kind of the header of this subject. Um, you know, women don't want to fall into that role so much. In terms of motherhood, then the woman may fear falling into that role, but where it was probably just kind of a given before. Yeah. So, I mean, they're going to, if they have a career, return to it. Even if they have a child, there may be attempts to make their job more flexible. There may be attempts to lean on the husband or whomever is in the picture more. But what I want to get at is what experience did you have with motherhood that either does or does not support the thesis that it is a positive and in fact existentially necessary thing. Like if you, when, when a woman dies, will she look back having not had kids and say, man, I really missed out. I think in my personal opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I think for the most part, probably. Yeah. She's going to feel like she's missed out on something, but I think there are outliers who you'll find will say, I knew I never wanted to have kids. Okay. Yeah. And a lot of this is, hormonal well, when you have a the child maternal instinct yes yeah i mean there's there's well we can talk about what that means exactly but is to say that when you have a child your hormonal balances do change because you are neurochemically now geared to protect that thing to ensure that thing survives beforehand that's not a consideration you have different hormonal balances so any notion of motherhood is out of the picture yeah until that neurochemical state arises. At what point did you feel like it was the right time to have kids and why? Is it because you were at the point in our structure of social norms where, hey, it's time to have kids? Or was it a creeping feeling in the back of your mind? Yeah, for me, it was both. Okay. Elaborate. Bo both occurred simultaneously. Okay. Do you think in the absence of the social norm, which is a hard thing to say, but let's say you were perhaps in the environment of today where it's more stigmatized, would that creeping feeling in the back of your mind override any desire to fit into this more ambitious picture of femininity? Perhaps. Perhaps. Okay, yes. Yeah, so hypothetical question. Let's move on a bit from that do you feel that your personality changed as a result of having me? 
Ooh, that's a good question. Well, my roles definitely changed. Um, but no, I mean, the, the fundamentals of my personality, no, did not change. I mean, I'm sure I experienced higher highs and lower lows, you know, based on, you know, seeing, you know, a cute little baby face staring up at me in the middle of the night that I'm rocking to sleep versus getting up three times during the night and feeling completely miserable when you're crying and, and needing to be fed. I mean, there are higher highs and lower lows. Um, as far as happiness, sadness from a maternal standpoint, and then if that wasn't part of the picture, would I still feel those high highs and those low lows? Perhaps, yes, but it wouldn't pertain to, the, you know, a child. So what I am sort of getting at is in being a mother, you inherit this role where you need to protect the child and have certain traits to ensure its survival. Those traits may be empathy, for instance. Empathy is often said to be in evolutionary terms evolved from motherhood you have to empathize and reflect the needs of the child so closely that you can genuinely provide for them so i would ask do you feel that you became more empathetic do you feel that empathy became a higher priority in your life as a value go ahead and answer that i mean it's 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 really difficult to say but I mean, it's easier for me to reflect on that, particularly within the last five years, versus from your birth on. Why is that? Primarily because I had to really reevaluate my life five years ago and really take note to what was important and, you know, how to achieve what was important in my mind. Okay, so, and if you don't mind me being specific, this reevaluation comes off the back of a divorce with yeah, yeah. my father, and you enter a state where you have to ask yourself, now that my child is out of the home, now that I don't have a husband, what do I want? What went wrong? Who am I going to become? And And the reason I bring that to your attention is because Sometimes people experience, you know, I don't want to label what I went through as like a, a crisis of self, but it was a completely different perspective where, you know, prior to I had someone to lean on and prior to there was a family unit, you know, it was almost like it was there regardless, but when you lose those things, you have to kind of take a step back and recognize, you know, what you can do better. Do you feel that after the divorce, that was the first time in your life where you truly felt independent? You had to count on yourself and yourself alone. Oh, absolutely. Do you think that's problematic to reach that point so late in life? Oh, absolutely. Why is that? Why, why is it such a problem? Because Well, because if I... If, it's not a problem per se, but to get to that point, you certainly would want to have that heightened sense of awareness much earlier in life. Awareness of your own internal workings? An awareness of your value and an awareness of 
what that value means to other people. So you're saying that in the first 40 something years of your life, you were unaware of what your value as an individual was and what your value to other people was to some degree and to some extent we're we're operating on some kind of social cruise control yes absolutely okay talk a little bit more about sort of coming out the other side of that if you don't if you don't mind oh well you kind of start from ground zero okay i mean you'll you'll have your career to fall back on and you know, that's relatively intact, I would surmise for most people. Um, But when you're thrust into the social scene after being married for such a long period of time, and things have so dramatically changed when it comes to how to date, um, how to interact in that realm, that's, that to me was somewhat of a challenge and a, you know, a a shock. Um, you know, it's not like dating in your twenties either. Are you comfortable talking about that experience in the new dating market? Well, it depends on what you ask. I just want general statements, opinions on online dating, that dynamic. Oh, I think online dating is, um, a disaster. I mean, not, not, you know, not... I wouldn't coin it as a disaster for me personally, but I think in general, it's, um, it feels like work because you're constantly concerned about what your profile looks like, what messages you're communicating to other people in the little written blips in the profile. Um, it just seems so impersonal. So let's talk about this a little more because... Online dating is, a lot of people think it is a great stimulus for a lot of the social change we're witnessing, and that we are optimizing for success in that market, and instead of turning to more traditional modes of dating and meeting people, we kind of have this as a safety net to which we automatically turn. But a lot of people are worried about the phenomena associated with these platforms, and that Men just don't have a lot of success on there. There are certain dynamics to heterosexual dating, let's say, where if the ratios, the ratio of men to women is skewed, and on online dating it appears that it's skewed heavily towards men, as in most people are men on online dating platforms, you get this phenomenon where a lot of men who are not as attractive, don't aren't as high status, don't have as high of an education, they get almost no attention, and then the guys at the top get almost exclusively the attention. Well, I think the guys at the top are traditionally already taken by the time they get to that. Right. So let's talk about your observations then, because I, I think you went on a couple of dates there. Who would get... Uh, an approval, first of all, from you on an online dating site. And second of all, did you find that you were inundated with requests? Um, so I'll take the latter question first. Yes, I found that I was inundated with requests, but by predominantly l- lower standard men who I did not find very physically attractive. Um, How does that make you feel? Shitty. 
Why does that make you feel shitty? Because it makes me wonder if oh, you I'm are a direct f- reflection of that 1 through 10. Okay, and then what about the oddball who shows up as clearly dapper or high status or something like that? Well, I mean, I think it's it's going to, you know, ultimately, I think women are looking for a mix of a little bit of everything as far as, you know, let's let's hope that he dresses well. Let's hope that he's got some intelligence. You know, let's hope that he makes a decent living. Yeah. So, I mean, that that would be my hope in what I would look for on a dating site if I were on one in in looking for a potential match, you know, somebody who. You know, because like you, you look on these dating sites and you see like these these guys who, in every single picture, they have a hat on and they have a pair of sunglasses on, and they're holding up a, a freaking fish on on a boat in the middle of a lake. Man, that could just be fifty year old Southern guys, you know, like. <laughs> and you're just like, okay, what's that about? They like to fish. You know. Why, why is that weird? Is it just because so many have that picture? Exactly. It's <laughs> like they copy each other. Oh, and then there's the other one where um, these men are taking pictures of themselves in public restrooms, like the public restroom selfie, and that's one of their profile pictures. That's a very common. A lot of young women do that, too. It's a bit weird. I, I think it's bizarre that you wouldn't think through long enough to not take a picture of yourself in a public restroom and put it on your profile. So... Let's think about this as well. So I know, and again, if you're comfortable elaborating on this, you did go on a couple of dates. Oh, yeah. You mentioned that, hey, the good guys are probably in monogamous relationships at this stage. And so I think what, predominantly so, yeah. So whatever remaining quality mates exist the in, this shit on, pool. in this online dating market, well, there's going to be some guys who are not bad, right? But if they could be in a monogamous relationship, why are they out here on an online dating platform? So you've gone out with a couple guys on there. They passed your test. Did you find that they were looking for a standard monogamous relationship? Were they decent people, or was there were there implications of sexual interaction? Like, what are what are they doing there? I I think it's just really kind of a a, a cornucopia. Okay, so different of all of the above. Like, okay. some people want to cling immediately. Some people, you know, just want a casual relationship. Um, it just it's all different. All different kinds, yeah. Okay. Let's move on to a discussion of ufology. So, okay. You have expressed to me many times in the past an interest in UAPs, interaction with extraterrestrial life, the belief in extraterrestrial life theories of how they've interacted with us, how we can and have interacted with them, anti-establishment narratives of what the government knows about it. Tell me a little bit about what has you interested in this domain. Well, I, I try to look at this particular subject with a relatively serious level of scrutiny. But, you know, I as you know, I was raised in a predominantly scientific household that focused more on evolution than Christianity. Yeah, to be specific, your dad was Professor Emeritus at Clemson. 
chair of the biology department, was a professor of biology at like three or four different colleges throughout the country, has a PhD in biology from UC Berkeley. Yeah, UNL, um, LSU, and then Clemson. Yeah, very educated guy. So I guess with that said, um, I feel like I have common sense, and I feel like I typically look at subject matter with, like I said, a relatively decent amount of scrutiny. So, you know, I think that really kind of the basis of my beliefs would go back to common sense of who we are and how we got here. And, you know, you can hypothesize about the religious aspects and, um, you know, the evolutionary aspects and things of that nature. But you also have to ask yourself some basic questions. Okay, we're a species of 7 billion people walking around a planet spinning in the middle of space. Okay, and then you look at the statistics of, you know, how many stars there are, stars and planets there are in our Milky Way alone. And then you look at the calculations of how many solar systems there are in the universe. You know, um, at some point in time, on that on that space-time continuum, there has got to be, based on just sheer common sense, intelligent life in the universe somewhere at some point in time besides us. I mean, they, why do you think that they send rovers to Saturn to find out if there's water and to find out if there's life? You know, that's that's one of the biggest reasons for our space exploration and um you know the proof is in the pudding what do you mean the proof is in the pudding well i mean they're finding back you know certain bacteria that grow on mars they they're saying that mars could have been a planet that at one point in time um, you know had water on its surface um they're also looking at other planets that fall in line with that same ideology. So, you know, to me, it's common sense that there's going to be some some kind of activity elsewhere. So, it is yet to be proven, right? We have not observed anything. Well, perhaps there are well, events. That's to, yeah, that's okay, I, I suppose that's up for debate, but... I Depends guess, on who you ask. What, what does this knowledge do for us? And if, if we're talking about some sort of probabilistic notion that there is or has been other intelligent life, what are the implications of Okay, that? so I think one of the biggest fears <clears throat> our, our government and our society has is if life is discovered off-planet, what implications does that have for our society and our population in general? And the overwhelming census is that there would literally be social 
chaos and breakdown. So if someone told the world right now that there are actual aliens that have interacted with us, you think the implications are that disorder would result? I have no idea. I think the the government's you know, have been colluding in this possibility for, you know, since the 40s. And um, I think that, you know, I'm of the agreement with many of the folks in this community that there is a um, calculated release program going on about this particular subject on UAPs. Um, that they're going to slowly condition us to receive this information over time, maybe over the course of the next, you know, 50 years and, and backdoor it so that it doesn't scare us. You know, in 2017, they released one of the videos of the UAP that one of the Navy pilots saw um, you know, maneuvering in ways that we are not familiar with. There was no source of propulsion on the UAP whatsoever. It's interesting to me, however, that even though we have this concrete evidence in front of us, the the overwhelming reaction is that we don't really know what that is. We really can't trust that. So, you know, I, th- I think it's on a controlled release cycle. What is a UAP? Well, unidentified aerial phenomenon, or most recently from my from my discoveries, are unidentified anomalous anomalous phenomenon. Why is that distinction necessary? I don't know. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay, so just terminology. Well, aerial and anomalous. What is the extent to which? I suppose we have interacted with aliens and I'm asking that because why would the government perform a controlled release thinking that whatever is revealed would immediately upset the world? Like, is it that serious? Is it because if someone told me today, like, Hey, you know, there was an alien in the bottom of the ocean and there's like a whole colony of like underwater cities. I'd just be like, okay. And like, what what's the problem? But you're basing your opinions and reactions on how you see the world. And your generation at this point in time is not running the government. Well, there's just the, like... The prior generations and the antiquated ideology on how to handle this kind of stuff is running the government. Yeah, but why would my disinterest have anything to do with that? I guess I'm curious, like... Why is it such a conspiracy? Why is there such conspiratorial accusations? It, it it goes back to, I think, one of the biggest things that occurred. Of course, we all know about Roswell. And after that occurred, um, you know, there was an immediate response that, hey, the you know, here's a UFO that crash landed in the desert. And here's a piece of the craft that it was in and the sighting was real and 
you know, this craft was real and there was a little guy that came out of it that was real. And, you know, within 24 hours, the government comes in and in their mind mops up what happened and devises a cover story. Um, So from the get-go, out of the gate, it was, for some reason, a a big problem to them. Let's get clear on something first, too. So no planet, as far as you know, within a reasonable number of light years is reachable from Earth. Correct. When I say a reasonable number of light years, I mean, using my bias towards a human lifespan, the... People traveling here would either have to be going greater than light speed, which theoretically is not possible in Newtonian physics, or they would have to live for thousands of years. So what is... Yeah, yeah, get into time regression. What is ufology's response to that? Well, I mean, it's a matter of, you know, back engineering what they supposedly are hiding behind closed doors so that we can conquer space-time travel. So the implication is they do have some sort of physical understanding that allows them to travel in a manner we don't understand. Yes. Okay. And are there implications in the domain of ufology, all of this, what most people would call conspiracy theory, that the government is hiding this technology? Oh, absolutely. So Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty big deal right now. Are there any technologies in particular that people would point to? Well, Zero-point energy. Um, you know, how to, how to wh- what the propulsion system is on these UAPs. You know, how does it work? Can we back-engineer it? You know, what, 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 what elements or what source of fuel is utilized to run these things? And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a big question. I mean, most, you know, most UAP sightings do have mundane explanations and, you know, the the sightings and the photos can be debunked. Um, But there's a very small percentage, you know, roughly two to five percent that not only have significant merit, but are also very highly guarded. Um, and you know, it's just, it's an ongoing issue. I mean, this is what, this is what happened. The minute there, you know, was a big UFO event that became public from what, you know, from, from what I understand, I mean, certainly there were, there were sightings that predate Roswell, but you know, if I use that point of a reference, um, or that point as a reference, you know, it's just, it's just been, it's been a taboo, highly, highly secretive subject from the get-go. I mean, there's, there's clearly compelling evidence that the government is operating in secrecy and certainly above congressional insight with, with black budget, you know, projects and, um, you know, Going back to going back to really in my mind, kind of the beginning when you know when in 1947 when Truman formed M- MJ12, Majestic 12, um, you know this group of 12 men who are 
scientists, very highly regarded scientists and, you know, naval officers and, um, you know, just a just a very, very secretive and well-decorated and educated men, um, you know, they they immediately begun drafting secret documents on, uh, you know, directing MJ-12 on how to handle potentially legit sightings. Um, you know, and if you look at the way that they laid the foundation for how to deal with these things, it was mainly through discrediting witnesses, through intimidation tactics, and um, initially confiscating any materials that related to, um, you know, potential contact. And so the, that that's where the foundation was laid, and and you know it's it's been like that since, and and you know until recently where you know they've had um, house subcommittees and you know big press releases and whistleblowers and um, people really bringing some things to light. It's um it's 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 a really interesting issue. The motive behind the government hiding this information is somewhat understandable. You can understand that at this point they're covering their tracks. They don't want to sow public distrust. But I don't understand why someone would want to care about this. Oh. Oh, my gosh. I don't I don't I don't see why somebody would say that. Okay. Um, Well, for me personally, I care about it because it provides the possibility that I'm part of something bigger which is what potentially oh something bigger than just seven billion people on earth that are all that are all dicking around every day and you know blind to what's going on and you know it just it the 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 possibility that there are other, there, there is other intelligent life in this universe and that we could potentially have contact with them and learn about them and, and visit other places is just amazing. So you think that the information that the government has is something that should be released in mass because it gives people the opportunity to explore something bigger than we've ever known before? Or that it would provide some sort of guidance at this time where, you know, perhaps like you said, people are sort of wasting away. They feel listless. We're misdirected. We turn to things like video games, porn, online dating even, in an attempt to fulfill our purpose. When in fact our purpose could be better guided with directives towards extraterrestrial life. I think... um my my response to that would be just being reminded of something Ronald Reagan said when he was a president. And even though he wasn't the sharpest tack in the box, um, oh. he, he made a comment, you know, an, 
very openly that I remember, and, uh, you know, to paraphrase, if we knew that intelligent life was out there, how little would the problems that we have seem? If I was told that there was extraterrestrial life, and we were very clear on where it is and how intelligent they were, and I was like... You wouldn't think that'd be cool? I'm not saying that it wouldn't be cool, but if I had actual problems, like, hey, what am I going to do with my life? Like, what if I'm poor? What if I have no money? Like, what if I'm lonely or something along these lines? It's like, extraterrestrial life doesn't help me unless it directly does like the mirror yeah no i understand what you're saying and i and just to clarify i think he was more so referring to like you know world problems like you know yeah sure perhaps it gives more perspective no it's like there's something even larger than us and this sort of diminishes the weight of our problems it's like reminding yourself that you're gonna die or something it's like why am i so caught up in this petty thing i just think it's a really really cool thought to know that that's a possibility and it's one thing to think about something being really awesome and you know going oh yeah that'd be great but to also pair that with the constructive criticism and the logic of it actually being valid I think or is kind of cool too let's talk about people's attempts at interacting with them so we went to a meetup in Asheville oh yeah North Carolina a while ago CE5 Dr. Richard so no Dr. Stephen Greer first talk about what CE5 is um well Dr. Stephen Greer I think kind of pioneered CE5 which is um uh, five levels of basically protocols that you go to to um, establish contact, potentially contact with um, extraterrestrial life. Uh, You know, one of the predominant beliefs is that because these beings are of such a high level of intelligence that they communicate in a way that is, you know, transcendental to us. So, you know, <clears throat> they, that, that that's a sense that they've really evolved. You know, we're kind of like the, the ant walking across the table, and they're kind of like the god up in the sky. <laughs> you know, there's a big gap between the two, and... Um, you know they've they've learned how to communicate te- you know telepathically um and with purpose okay and c5 is an attempt to despite our limited abilities as humans transcend ourselves and begin Correct. communicating with them you said it was a five-fold protocol do you know what those steps are exactly or it's it's it brings into attention meditation and also <clears throat> clearing your mind and then bringing with you positive intent to make that contact okay so let's frame this 
process this protocol in the context of the thing that we went through. So we show up to a church in Asheville, it's like a Sunday afternoon or something, and we enter and they're just discussing the nature of extraterrestrials. Uh, we walk in, we're a little bit I feel bit like late, the, the, the precursor to the loose CE5 protocols that we experienced um, was extremely subpar. I think that um, <laughs> the... Are you talking about the meditation portion or... No, I'm talking about the the precursor to the, the time we spent before we went and before we went out into the field and, you know, created our circle of chairs and quieted our minds and began the meditation process. And I think the person that was running that particular CE5 group did not have a whole lot of focus um, and did not have a whole lot of, you know, he didn't spend his time well discussing, first of all, the protocols and you know, really the intent of the group. Yeah, it was unclear what you were supposed to do. So first of all, let's back up to his actual, like, spiel presentation section. I mean, I, you know, I remember at one point, he, you know, some of the people in the group who, in my opinion, were a little flaky, um, they started talking about, oh, well, I got a call from one of my friends And they told me that a person that we mutually knew passed away. And right at that time, you know, like there was like a smoke alarm going off or some, you know. It was a lightning detector. Serendipitous thing happening. I just think that's total bullshit. So you don't. So the argument is that they operate in a higher plane and therefore have to send messages telepathically through some medium that manifests as a lightning detector going off with three beeps i I just thought that that was getting way off track and i don't think that that was appropriate in that environment and um i think it should have been strictly you know maybe talking a little bit about um the history of um ufology to begin with and perhaps then the introduction of um Dr. Greer, and then focusing on, you know, the protocols, what the intention is of each, and then how the group will then um, present that, that protocol as they're, as they're conducting it. Okay. I just don't think that it was a good experience either way. And um, I think if it had been, it would have, it would have meant a little bit more, but unfortunately that wasn't our experience. So moving on to the meditation portion, can you describe what exactly we did? I was kind of checked out, to be honest. Yeah, I could tell. Yeah, like, to be clear. You didn't want to be there, though. I, like, I did, but I didn't. It was like, hey, this is an opportunity to see some... You just wanted to be there because if there were people that you could make fun of, then you could entertain yourself in your own mind. It's not that cynical, but it is like, I would be curious to see these people. Right. And I think like there's a version of myself maybe two or three years ago that'd be like, I'm not going anywhere near this. Oh, no, it would be I'm not going anywhere with you. (laughs) Oh, that's not. God damn it. Okay, (laughs) whatever. Um, Talk about the process. What I'm a uh, a novice with the CE protocols, by the way, I I, I really, you know, I haven't taken the time to really delve into. Um how each one 
really intricately operates. But, you know, the, the, the general intention is to work as a group and that that group's mental state and intention can then lead to something greater, which hopefully is contact. Okay. So we also... And they incorporate meditation yeah. to, to accomplish that. Yeah, so we sit down and people are in a circle. There's a couple of like weirdos on a mattress doing their thing. Yeah, I think they were homeless. And maybe, maybe, maybe not. I, don't, I think they just might have wanted to be comfortable. Um, but there is this weird portion at the beginning where like there's like some like Sanskrit stuff. Okay, so that's kind of cool because yeah, I mean, and I don't, I don't want to misspeak, and I, and I, you know, need to educate myself a little bit more but you know like the veda protocols uh, yeah it's all based in historical um tradition uh you know of how to quiet your mind and get into that meditative open state okay so like i think i don't know exactly what was going on but i think like maybe some like kind of perfume was released or something no? Okay, then I, I was completely off base. So let's talk about the actual meditation portion and, like, what's actually going on in the mind of the people there and the individual. So what is one supposed to do? And what is what, what was going through your mind as everybody sat in silence? Oh, I was just, I was just um, a little bit overwhelmed that, to be honest with you, there was such a subpar unity amongst the group because I don't think that we were properly prepared. Well, that aside, what kind of meditation was going on? What what sort of manifestations, if any, were occurring? Was there projection towards some sort of extraterrestrial higher power? I didn't get to that point because that, that was my first experience. Oh, okay. Fair enough. But oddly enough, um, I, you know did quiet my mind with intention and listen to the meditation and the chants and shortly thereafter I don't know if you noticed this or not but I kept and kept on turning to my left and looking at the tree line and I kept telling you that I saw this intermittent you know somewhat small green flashing light and we had been tracking the um, airplanes, you know, to make sure that, like, and satellites to make sure that, like, they weren't, we weren't misinterpreting those as being other things. But, you know, it clearly wasn't an airplane because we had established the flight path, generally, of the airplanes that had been previous, previously going overhead. But the thing that I I found weird, and I and I noticed this occurring for about fifteen minutes, was that it wouldn't it would jump from, uh, you know, a group of trees. I'd see a couple of green flashes or pulses, uh, and then it would bounce to another area of the trees, you know, perhaps 10 or 15 feet away. And this from us was about 15, 20 feet away. But it just, you know, that, lo- that, that green light would bounce 
in different to different portions of the trees just as a slow green glowing bounce and I just thought okay well I, I know I guess I know I'm seeing that but you know is it something else like is it you know obviously can it be explained by something you know logical um in my mind and I, I just didn't know what to make of it and then about so that was what several months ago or whatever and then you know I I'm on the the email list for that CE5 group and the guy that runs the group sent out an email that said that um, during one of their sessions they had experienced the same thing but that they felt like it was somebody who had previously who knew that they were going to be there that night and they were fucking with their heads because it was a drone it was lights from a drone (laughs) yeah i was gonna say if it happens twice it seems like it probably wouldn't manifest in the same way right it's like why would the exact but but they but they described the green the green light to a t as to what i saw yeah which makes i just thought it was weird it it doesn't but it seems bizarre that the exact same thing like let's suppose for a moment yeah, that it does an extraterrestrial was somehow coming down from the fourth dimension and was flashing the green light in some way why would they do the exact same thing twice yeah, yeah. um unless i guess there are arguments it's it's all caught up in like you know is it illogical is it logical like there are times when it can be and there are times when it can't and there's no certainty, so people choose camps. It's like, ooh, science. You know, these guys are crazy conspiracy, yeah. conspiratorial, conspira- conspiracy theorists. And then there's like, well, you guys, you know, you you, act, you think you're so smart and rational, but you don't understand. And you know, neither side really knows. Well, you know, and they had like the MK Ultra project in the government in the what like 50s and 60s i don't know when it was but like it was a long time ago yeah it was cold war yeah they were they were studying telekinesis yeah and you know well sort of um you know like remote viewing um all sorts of stuff that really utilizes the power of the mind and uh, you know it goes into that whole additional set of senses that you're utilizing you know that perhaps lay dormant in each one of us which also by the way is one of the fundamental beliefs of I guess kind of like people who see contact as possible that you know contact making contact is is something that we are all capable of and that there are areas of in our areas in our brain that we just haven't figured out how to utilize and how to do that, but that people who are successful with, you know, remote viewing and telekinesis and those types of things have have been able to turn that part of their brain on. Like kind of like they say the third eye. Yeah. I, uh, the third eye terminology is applicable here to me because it seems that it's well and that becomes very interesting with with different cultures and history and and how different cultures have looked at that particular topic 
Well, what I wanted to say Sorry. was that it has a religious aspect to it, much like the notion of a third eye, much like the notion of achieving nirvana or ascending to heaven. It's like right. there is an unverifiable piece of information like, oh, there's something in the back of my brain. How do we verify that? I guess you could scientifically study it, fMRIs, et cetera. But there's the belief that that occurs and then there's some sort of spiritual practice right. to reach that end. And it right. has a similar religious aspect, which makes perhaps it popular. Let's transition the discussion from ufology. So we actually, we did another recording before this. Uh, we're in a, an RPI. That's Rensselaer Polytechnic. Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, Institute where, I, where I am doing my undergrad. And we're, we're in one of the music practice rooms. And so there are adjacent booths. And we were recording yesterday. A person comes in to play, I don't know, like an oboe or something. And then there's another kid on the piano and just the audio is getting screwed. So I don't want to rehash everything we talked about then. But yeah, to give some brief background, you were... In probation and parole, a branch of law enforcement in South Carolina for a good number of years, almost 20 years. And I don't want to go too much into the history of that, but I think let's sort of take the political climate that we're in now and try and apply what you've learned. So Blue Lives Matter has been a response to some extent to the to police brutality. And so we're in a weird place where it's like we're actually at a time in history where people are saying the police should not exist which <laughs> yeah. is a very which is a strange thing to say so give me your thoughts if you have any on blue lives matter the response to police brutality what this all means anything you have to say okay so your last comment about like people are thinking that like police shouldn't even exist isn't there a movie out there that like you can like do crime free for like one night yeah. without oh, any God. repercussions so the p oh the purge yeah that's kind of how i would see it playing out and and yeah anarchy yeah so if the police don't exist, which which the, which begs another question, w- would that ultimately be kind of a good thing? Maybe anarchy, <laughs> Pur- a purge. <laughs> uh, you'd, yeah, you'd have to be God to know to some extent, but let's not speculate on what would happen the if we purge. were perpetually in the purge. Let's think about so, like, as a police officer. How important do you think your role is in the state? Not. Really? Uh, you were a police officer for 20 years. You think you were wasting your time? Like, yes. Okay, explain. It's futile. I mean, it has to be done, I guess, to keep that sense of civility and that sense of control and that sense of order. But, I mean, the the work unto itself is predominantly pointless unless you know i mean every once in a while you get a person who you have impacted to such a degree that they have a better quality of life yeah so to clarify your role probation and parole means that you are given past offenders and you have to supervise them possibly perform home visits possibly appear in court to testify to their lack of adherence to their probation. Yes. 
And that's pointless because most of them are not rehabilitated, let's say. It, you know, one of the terms I'm sure we're all familiar with in the criminal justice system is revolving door. So you go in, you go out. There's just a revolving door. It's just over and over and over and over. Oh, what do you mean? Like, like new the, offender comes in? Or the same offender comes in three oh, times, okay. four times, five times. Yeah, so recidivism. Yeah, I mean, there are some valuable um, benefits that you can and hope to hope to provide the people that you supervise. And um, there are also some some value and benefit to some of the roles within that job, a couple of which I enjoyed um, a lot, you know, serving warrants and going to court. But, you know, the majority of my job was not those things. The majority of, majority of my job was sitting down and taking reports day in and day out um, of these individuals um, to track their movement and to make sure that they, you know, were gainfully employed, that they weren't using drugs, and that they weren't out reoffending. And, you know, for somebody to spend 20 minutes with these offenders is really not going to change whether they reoffend or not, whether they move or not, whether they work or not, whether they, you know, for the most part. I mean, of course there are those special cases, but, you know, if you refer somebody for a job and that, that job ends up being their dream job and they do really well and they get off, you know, they're outliers for sure. But is that enough for you to justify doing the job? Like, if someone was like, I want to be in probation and parole, and you would tell them, okay, occasionally you might get a person who goes and finds some more purpose in life, but most of the time, it's honestly just drudgery. I think um, hindsight, that particular type of position, should be used as a springboard for something else, perhaps something federally. Okay. I just was not ambitious enough to do that because of my, you know, I my focus was on other things. Like what me? <laughs> well, family, yeah. friends, you know. It, I just wasn't ambitious. Okay. Do you regret that? Of course. Do you regret that your ambition was not directed towards progress in law enforcement sure. or sure. that it was not directed towards something else yeah i mean i think i think i could have capitalized on that field if i had been paying attention okay what type of person should enter that field gosh i don't i don't really know how to answer that i mean I can tell you that most of the people in that field are have very similar personality traits. Um, but I mean, are we like genuinely like if I pluck one at random, you could probably describe them. They would be very similar to me. What does that mean? It, I don't know. And it's not something <laughs> that I've ever really been able to explain to anybody. And, you know, I can be sitting right next to somebody I'm, I, I worked with 
and they feel the exact same way, but neither one of us can put it into words. Okay, so I mean, that makes me think that there's perhaps an element of community here. You have people who all understand that they are inexplicably similar, perhaps, and that has the element of a tribe, no? Yeah, maybe that's it. What would you maybe say? It's a, maybe it's accumulated. It's not a given. What would you say law enforcement has a tribal aspect to it? Oh, very much so. To okay. a fault. I mean, back in the 80s, look at the NYC. Corrupt as hell. They protected each other to a fault. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. Yeah. Okay, so we can talk about NYC, but now we're at the point where we are highlighting the fact that black people are being killed by police officers. Right. Wait, did we just change subjects completely? Did I miss something? I don't did think I, so. Did no. I go off planet there for a no, minute? No, no, no. So let me clarify. So I might have been having a CE5 moment. Oh, my God. So law enforcement has a tribal nature to it. They're willing to cover each other's backs or something like that. Are you cold? It's freezing. <laughs> oh, okay. We'll, we'll wrap up here shortly. But there's a tribal aspect to it. And yeah, very perhaps much so. they are therefore willing to cover each other's ass if corruption is rampant. Talking about wrongdoings, let's say, in law enforcement. We're now in a time where we're highlighting police brutality constantly. Oh, yes. So do you think there's anything about this tribal, this, this sort of clan of law enforcement and the personality types that lend it to the problems we're witnessing, that is, the shooting of black people. And if you look at the stats, let me clarify, it's not like we're just shooting black people randomly. If you look at the stats, it's something like, in the past year, 389 white people have been shot by police. 225 have been shot by, 225 black people have been shot. Something like 120 Hispanics have been shot. So what are you asking me exactly? Do you think... What do, what do you think the reason for this is? The reason for what specifically? Why is police brutality occurring? Like, do you think there's any explanation within law enforcement itself inherent to it that is tribal, that these people have a personality type? Or is it like, hey, there are some bad apples in there, shit happens. Like, stop looking for a reason. Oh, no, I think we should always look for a reason. Um, but I also think that there are going to be bad, apple, bad apples in every bunch. You can take a, a public company, a private company, a government agency. You're, you're going to have bad apples in every bunch. And, you know, the, the responsibility of law enforcement um, is, is so great that when they misbehave or do something really egregious, um, of course it's going to be advertised and disputed and criticized um, and lead to movements. Um, it, it should. Well, let me ask you this. You've been in heat of the moment situations you've had a gun affixed to your hip did you ever feel yourself slipping into some kind of irreparable mistake like you've got a lot of power and responsibility yes on your i was hand. just gonna say i think that lends itself to what we had just touched on you know poli police are given just an 
ungoverned amount of power. Just, I mean, just an, an immense amount of power. Did you ever observe anybody who was willing to abuse that blatantly? Yes. Because that seems attractive for a psychopath, right? Like, hey, I can have a gun and it's, I can, you know, well, I mean, like you're still not overt, to own a gun, not, but. Not in overt terms. Not like I have a gun on my hip or a pair of handcuffs strapped to my back and, you know, my, I'm going to go rob a bank and, you know, handcuff a, a hostage to a side rail like not like that like I don't I've never seen anything crazy like that I mean in my department it wasn't there wasn't really a whole lot of that going on I mean as far as an abuse of power but I think the sheriff's office in the county that I worked in they experienced a lot of that they experienced a lot of um nefarious activity with their officers any examples oh i think i remember um, a a deputy who was um utilizing ci's confidential informants um at some point in time and um not only did he become romantically involved with one of his ci's but he also um started dealing drugs with this with this confidential informant. Oh, okay. Seems like a pretty typical, like, yeah, you're involved with the mafia slash, you know, like, you you can leverage your position of authority mm-hmm. f- via association with the phenomena you're trying to prevent. Or the something. the yeah. trajectory of what you want to accomplish, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's bring this to a close. Okay. Tell me, you know, we're in this world where, you know, maybe mothers are, people don't want to be mothers. We have um, police brutality. Uh, we, the government may or may not be hiding information about UFOs. What are you looking forward to in the next couple of years of your life? Ooh, well, um, obviously um, getting started with my new position um, so, you know, as a market investigator for a large, um, box company, retail box company. Family dollar. Slash Dollar Tree. Do- oh, they're associated. I did not know. Okay. Continue. So, yeah. Maybe the future will hold a potential romantic <laughs> endeavor. Who knows? With somebody special. We'll see about that. But one thing at a time for me. Okay. Cool. Well, thank you, Mom, for coming on my podcast. Yeah, okay.